Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and research associate, and Noah Gould, alumni and student programs manager here at Acton. Later, we'll discuss the question of is the, if the president of the United States can really do that job without breaking the law and the case against Israel at The Hague. But first, I want to go to Davos. I'm going to be honest, I kind of want to go to Davos. I mean, not just because it's in, in Davos and that sounds pretty fantastic. But yeah, I, the World Economic Forum holds such a place, I think, in the cultural zeitgeist of people who are uh, pay attention to world affairs and news and people who are terminally online uh, that it would be kind of interesting to check it out. And this year really would have been an interesting year to be there in uh, no small part because of the presence of Javier Malay, the president of Argentina. Malay spoke at Davos and really gave quite the uh, the rousing speech condemning socialism, really taking it to the the Davos man uh, idea to the whole conceit of the World Economic Forum. Um, there's actually something that's really cool if you can that you can find on Twitter where they uh, they used an AI, so you can listen to him deliver the speech, uh, and you can listen to it translated into English, but in his own voice, which is really cool and a really cool way to listen to it. I will put a link to that in the show notes so that people can listen to the speech. Uh, But it really was a fascinating speech uh, by Malay, and even more so given the context, the place in which he was speaking. Dan, what did you make of Malay's address to the World Economic Forum? So Malay's address is remarkable in a number of ways. One of the ways that's remarkable is that it's very different from what normally happens at gatherings like this. There's a great uh, article that came out last week in Politico asking the question, why do people at these sort of events seem so dull? And the reason is, is that they are proud newsreaders. And what you hear at Davos every year is what you've been reading about in The New Yorker, in Harper's, in in The Atlantic for the, you know, just, you know, later and in a very nice resort town. What you have with Malay is someone who is a genuine thinker. This is someone that is a serious student of economics, a serious student of a heterodox school of economics, Austrian economics that has its own unique perspective. And he came and basically set forth how he thinks of economic development from that perspective in a very tightly argued, 
tightly reasoned presentation. And that is not something you usually see. You don't usually see thinkers there. You see talkers there. And that is remarkable. And one of the reasons that you see talkers more than you see thinkers is because you get a lot of politicians. And this is what they do. You know, they're not academics. They're not selected on the basis of deep thinking. They are selected for other reasons. One of, one of this is that, they can, is that they can talk. But when you had a world leader making a powerful and principled case for the importance of economic development, for the importance of freedom, and uh, for the dangers of socialism is, is not the sort of, the sort of mealy-mouth regurgitation of the Atlantic that you usually hear. And for that, it's remarkable. Yeah, the uh, to give you an idea of the kind of sessions, conversations you would otherwise be subjected to, which are perfectly in line with what you would expect from the World Economic Forum, later on there was a uh, discussion with the United States uh, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, hosted, moderated by Tom Friedman from the New York Times, where they discussed the possibility and feasibility of a Palestinian state, which as an academic exercise, okay, but within the context of what is happening right now in Israel and Gaza, that's not something that's happening anytime soon. And it does, it, it helps drive home that impression of like, these are a whole lot of elite people again, who read all the same things and talk to all the same people who are out of touch with world events, who are out of touch with what is going on. Uh, on the ground, because uh, I don't think you would really get the sense from the conversation, listen to some of it, that they recognize that like the left and the right in Israel agree right now that there's no possibility, there's no way forward for a Palestinian state. Um, but it is, I'm just going to give you a little bit of the, the intro from Malay's speech. Uh, today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger, and it is in danger because those who are supposed to have uh, to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. Some have been motivated by well-meaning individuals who are willing to help others. Others have been motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me, no one is in better place than us Argentines to testify to these two points. Uh, so little little shades of Reagan there too. With the uh, government is not the solution to the problem; it is the problem. Um, but really, laying down a gauntlet uh, and a well-informed one, not just from his perspective, uh, as Dan pointed out, of being educated as an economist, part of a heterodox school of economic thought, but as an elected political leader addressing these direct issues um, and spurred into that office largely by the consequences of terrible economic management of his country. Yeah, there's something really fresh about this uh, 
this lecture, what he's saying, and you know, I like to say once again, I was obviously snubbed by not being invited to speak at Davos. But you know, this is a this is a refreshing. It's like, it's like people who I know who have been waiting to get on uh, get Cubs season tickets for like twelve, fifteen <laughs> exactly. years. You slowly move up the list every year. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, he's giving a really important distinction here between kind of two versions of what we might call capitalism um, in in the world, and the kind of Davos version of corporatism where there's all these business people, they're all there lobbying, it's all about kind of trading these favors. That's what a lot of people think about when they think of capitalism is these elites all gathering together. If that's what we're we're talking about, then I get why people are critical, both on the right and left. But he gives a distinction here between kind of a corporatist control economy where the biggest businesses are able to leverage the government power to kind of get ahead to an actual economic development that's going to be solving people's problems and creating prosperity for a broad number of people. That Those are two extremely different visions. Some people have complained, I think, at recent years in Davos about the – it's not just investment bankers and, and central financial planners. American business, uh, especially in the tech center, has taken over – um, Davos in a really interesting way. And I think this shows the importance of businesses to be able to grow, to have to trade some of these favors. One of the problems with – now, we've been critical of the Davos set, which I think is appropriate. But I think it's also important to be critical of those critical of the Davos set. And here I'm talking about Alex Jones and Infowars who make a sort of cottage industry of uh, you know finding the most awkwardly wardrobed uh, shots of Klaus Schwab and you know putting as many shadows on them as possible to make him look as sinister as possible. Noah is absolutely right that there's a fascination with tech now. There's also a fascination with journalists and there's a fascination with politicians because the World Economic Forum does not shape some sort of shadowy agenda. They are followers and they will ride on the coattails of whatever is interesting and popular at the moment which is how we got Javier Malay there in the first place. He is someone that has captured people's imaginations, I think for a lot of good reasons, but he is the flavor of the month. He is the person that's getting big articles in the New York Times, in The Economist, in all of these you know, big journalistic organs, and, you know, these are the people, they, they, are, they are not leading indicators. They are following the trends. Again, what you are hearing there, when Secretary Blinken is having the conversation about Tom Friedman, about the, about the feasibility of a Palestinian state, you're reading about a Matt Iglesias column that came out two months ago. And that if you read it, you would already know the contours of their conversation. You, you make a good point about the way we talk about things like the World Economic Forum are generally speaking unhelpful and that context that you provided, Dan, is a good one to keep in mind. It's like the um, the, the saying from uh, the pollster Kristen Soltis Anderson about Washington, D.C. I moved to Washington, D.C. hoping that it would be the West Wing. Everybody told me it would be House of Cards. Turns out it's actually Veep. Everybody is venal and awful and they're pretending to be in control of things that they really aren't in control of. Um, so it, it is good to have ourselves divorced from that more conspiratorial idea that, you know, this is a 
um, you know, a shadowy cabal of people who are actually running everything. There, there is nobody who is actually running everything. You know, anybody go spend some time in Washington, D.C. and talk to the people who actually live and work there. And you will very quickly come away with the impression that everybody thinks they can pretend like they're running things, they aren't actually running things. Uh, events will always get out ahead of people's ability to control them. But I do want to ask a question raised on off the point that you were making that, you know, Malay is the flavor of the month. He's the interesting thing. Uh, do you think the World Economic Forum really understood what they were getting when they invited Javier Malay to come speak? Because while I can really only speak intelligently on the coverage of Malay from an American journalism perspective. I think it's pretty safe to say American journalists do not understand Javier Malay. They do not understand the political realities in Argentina. And I think one of the biggest, and we, when we talked with uh, Alex Schaflen from Acton, uh, who is from Argentina, uh, knows Malay somewhat, we'll put that uh, link to that episode in the show notes, you had this you know, point about you know, him being uh, media calling him in the United States Trump-like. And I made the point that like there's an understanding of that that does make sense in that he is showy. He's bombastic. You know, one only needs to go on on YouTube or Twitter and look up clips of him from campaigning or from interviews and you'll find the most colorful stuff from it. He, he was, was funny. He's Legitimately funny. Legitimately funny. And I know this drives some people crazy, but so is Donald Trump. Absolutely. Right? That is one of the things that you know people, because you're supposed to hate everything about him, aren't allowed to acknowledge is that he is legitimately funny. Um, same thing with Malay. Do you think the, the Davos set in inviting Malay, one, because of, you know, he's immediately relevant, but do you think they were just reading the press clippings and thinking that they were going to get somebody more, for lack of another way to put it, troglodytic, like Trump would come across at a place like this? Or do you think they had any real understanding that what they were going to get was a head of state uh, who does have some, you know, bombast and showiness to him when he wants to, but who, as we've discussed and we know, is a serious thinker, uh, an economist, and somebody who has a perspective on the issue set that is supposed to be what the World Economic Forum is about. I think the preoccupation of the World Economic Forum is finding people in the world who've got a little shine and hoping that it rubs off on them. And this is a success for the World Economic Forum in so much as we're talking about it today. They have successfully booked somebody who gave a barn burner speech that people are talking about. I think that was the hope. Again, the sort of, you know, when you look, you know, you can find individual talks that individuals at the World Economic Forum have, have given that are pretty zany, that are pretty out there. But you will also find many talks that are the sort of squishy center right down the middle um, talk. You will find some center-right stuff as well. Um, they are interested in privilege and power, and they do not care what its ideological trappings are. They see some prestige in 
Malay. There were also, you know, one of the interesting things is when it was first announced that Malay would be speaking at the World Economic Forum, you had all of these folks on the right, particularly on the libertarian right, that were waiting for him to sell out. They thought, oh, he's going to Davos to speak because he has capitulated to this shadowy new world order. Obviously, Klaus Schwab has something on him. And what Malay did is went there and did what Malay does, including ending his speech with an expletive. Now, mild expletive, but it was very much his sort of, you know, you know the substance and the style that one would expect from Javier Malay, we're both there and they're in abundance. And I think that's exactly what they wanted um, because this is interesting. This is captivating. This is someone that has captured the public's uh, imagination and they, and they, and they want, they want their slice of that. And the World Economic Forum doesn't stand for some sort of set of principles. You're exactly right about it's whatever shine kind of rubs off on them. If he crashes and burns and the policies uh, don't work out in the time frame that he has, then a certain set can just say, you know, this proves X, Y, Z. And if he's successful, then they can be the ones who saw him at Davos. It's much more about kind of prestige rather than kind of the underlying ideas that maybe get us excited or we want to talk about. That's almost irrelevant to the purpose, this type of speech. There's a column from Douglas Murray in the New York Post in which he, uh, I think, makes an, an, an interesting point here about what the expectations is and kind of references, probably intentionally but without naming it, what's called O'Sullivan's Law, uh, this idea coined by John O'Sullivan, former editor of National Review, that any organization that is not explicitly right-wing becomes increasingly more left-wing over time. And Murray makes this point about the uh, the the endowments, the foundations that were founded by Rockefeller or Ford um, having moved far away from the original agenda of those organizations and in some places to campaign against the kinds of things that made those people the money that funded those foundations in the first place and making the point that the same applies to the World Economic Forum. I'll give you a bit of it here. Uh, It may have been founded on free market principles, but it has ended up worshiping very different gods. So Malay's speech this week was something like a callback to the organization's supposed roots. On Wednesday, he warned the World Economic Forum that, quote, the Western world is in danger. And while the other gods of Davos have spent years saying the same thing, they have come to very different diagnoses. While the gods of Davos have spent recent years warning against climate change and populism, Malay has a different prognosis. He declared that the West is in danger, quote, because those who are supposed to have defended the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. The world should instead embrace free market capitalism to bring an end to world poverty. It was a refreshing change for the conference. So before we move off this, um, just comment on the World Economic Forum in general does this serve a purpose? Is it the kind of thing that we should, you know, it happens and there's some news coverage about it typically because there are people who are big, important people who will come and talk, but it doesn't really mean or do anything. Uh, how should we think about the World Economic Forum 
from neither the perspective of the people who think that it is the Davos set, the end all and be all of human existence, and the conspiratorial set who think that it is, you know, a shady cabal in some kind of an ice castle somewhere who are turning the dials and controlling all of human existence. So if I was going to put my most kind of optimistic glasses on here, uh, there are influential people at these conferences. So there's a lot of people who heard the speech, and I would hope that it kind of moves the borders of plausibility to open up a broader conversation about, you know, what, how we should think about economics, how we should set up um, kind of the business sector and kind of these opposing visions of the world that he presented. So that would be kind of at best, I hope, that people who are influential in different, you know, not one institution, but different institutions all around the world might have a little bit of a broader set for of what's possible as they think about policy and the like. There's a very important book that is very important to Acton's mission by Frederick Hayek, uh, not book, essay, but rather uh, The Intellectuals and Socialism. And in that book, Hayek talks about a class of people called the secondhand dealers in ideas. This is exactly who goes to these events. Are these secondhand dealers in ideas? These are not the true intellectuals, the true scholars, but these people are very important in the sense that they take those theories that do come from real thinkers, among whom I think we can, we can count Javier Malay, and they present them to an educated professional audience that then has leverage over institutions, etc. Why... O'Sullivan's law is true, or at least true in the world it is now configured, is because socialism has explanatory power, and it is easy to convince that second, those secondhand dealers and ideas to adopt that, because then every day when they see something happen in the world, they have a very quick shortcut to explain it. And the only way you can beat that is with something else, with explanatory power. And this is the opportunity that I think Malay has seized. He has given them a different way of thinking through the world. And I think this is a positive development. I hope we see more secondhand dealers and ideas embracing this sort of thing and laundering Malay's ideas instead of socialism. That, that's a good point about the explanatory power being a, a vital element to it. Now, I, I've liked from uh, for years now the line essentially distilled from Jonah Goldberg's last book, Suicide of the West, and that you know, liberal democratic capitalism is the greatest system ever. We even struggle with like what the word is for this, you know, um, that emerged, was conceived, you know, just kind of came into existence for maximizing human flourishing. The only problem is, is that it doesn't feel like it. It feels unnatural, which is why you get, you know, the, the idea that socialism was this great, great new invention is like, no, it's just tribalism. Like we have been dealing with different forms of tribalism since the, you know, the, the existence of man. Um, so it, it, it is important. And it's something for people who are advocates for a free market system to keep in mind that uh, I, I remember pointing this out to people years ago, especially you know, the most radical of libertarians, who when you see a, a problem coming at you, you see something that society is dealing with, 
you'd often hear this kind of dismissive, you know, oh, oh the market will solve it. And it's like, th- that's not a sufficient, that's not a good answer to anybody outside of the small clique of people that already agree with you dispositionally about the way that the market works. Uh, people, it may be true that the market will produce some kind of a solution to it, but people don't have that same expectation. They don't have that same feeling. It doesn't feel that way. So keeping that in mind when explaining, one, what a market economy system is and how it works is important. And and offering that explanation, bringing that explanatory power to bear when you make these arguments is important, which is one of the things that makes Malay such an interesting figure on the world stage right now. We will, of course, keep an eye, eye on what he continues to do in Argentina and around the world. But from one bombastic head of state to another bombastic former head of state, possible future head of state again in Donald Trump. While Donald Trump has been seemingly locking up, if he hasn't completely locked it up already, the New Hampshire primary is tomorrow. Uh, We will know more after that happens, but really everybody but Nikki Haley has dropped out of that race and endorsed Trump. He looks really well on his way to securing the Republican nomination for president again. A couple days ago, uh, in light of a three-judge federal appeals court panel that is expected to soon decide whether to dismiss Trump's federal election interference case based on presidential immunity claims, uh, and I'm going to get the nomenclature right here because he didn't tweet this. He truthed it on Truth Social, his uh, niche social media platform. Um, I am not going to read this in the inflection that it was implied with because Mr. Trump wrote it in all caps. I am not going to scream the text of this at you, but in your mind, just imagine, just know that that was the way that it was initially presented. Quote, a president of the United States must have full immunity without which it would be impossible for him slash her to properly function. Any mistake, even if well-intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Even events that, quote, cross the line must fall under total immunity or it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. Sometimes you just have to live with great but slightly imperfect. All presidents must have complete and total presidential immunity or the authority and decisiveness of a president of the United States will be stripped and gone forever. Hopefully this will be an easy decision. God bless the United States or God bless the Supreme Court. Uh, There's also a a, a bit in there that I didn't read in in that part of it uh, about how comparing essentially what we were talking about here to uh, a bad apple or a rogue cop in a policing understanding the police have to be able to to fight crime even if there's going to be you know some rogue cop out there who's you know probably wearing a a suit and a dress shirt with no tie and just got done roughing up somebody behind a dumpster somewhere uh, so this prompts I think the obvious question Dan to you first, Can the president of the United States do his job without a guarantee that he can break the law with impunity? Because that really is what is being implied, not even implied, directly stated here. It seems that they can because every single president has done so without 
such immunity. Um, there is no clause in the Constitution granting the president immunity from prosecution. There is no precedent guaranteeing a president immunity from prosecution. In fact, when we last had a president that looked like he might be prosecuted for certain crimes, another president, Grand Rapids' own Gerald R. Ford, pardoned him. I would assume that President Ford did that only because he thought it might be possible for former presidents to be tried. Um, this is something that we have also, you know, we look around the world and leaders are tried all the time. In South Korea in particular, you have a history of corruption resulting in the trial and imprisonment of leaders. South Korea is a fully functioning democracy. It is not one in which, you know, has, has descended into anarchy because former presidents have been successfully prosecuted. Um, there is no grounds for thinking that this is true historically within the United States. There's no grounds for thinking of this in a sort of general political science sense. You know, will an executive branch cease to function if, you know, its head is held to account by the law? I mean, we see functioning democracies in the world that deal with this, you know, routinely. Um to no obvious sort of deleterious effects. So I think, um, you know, President Trump is just off the ball here. Yeah, this is just pretty much pure rhetoric. I mean, think about if we flipped this statement to uh, Biden saying something like this. Would Trump agree with, oh, you know, we can't agree with everything Biden says, but we just have to take the good and the bad, and he's going to break, you know, some eggs to make an omelet. I want to go even further than you, which is if you go either read the transcript from or listen to the oral arguments that were made before this panel on this issue. And I, I want people to keep in mind, if you don't follow the court's uh, very closely. Appellate courts essentially are the place where all the wild hypotheticals come out, right? So like it is it is basically 101 level philosophy class in that sense of you take whatever theory you're operating on and you push it to the extremes to see what the implications of it are. And sometimes it does lock the advocates into answering questions in a way that isn't really all that helpful for them from a normal person's understanding. And one of those cases was asking, you know, well, could uh, could the president of the United States order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his rival for the presidency? Because that would be an official act. He is ordering a military entity to do it. But under the argument that was being advanced by the Trump legal team that he would have complete and total immunity for such thing. OK, so, of course, like this would be trollish. And it, again, is the kind of thing that bothers me some. But I think in this case would be warranted. I don't understand why the Biden White House didn't come out and say, OK, if the pres if the former president really believes that I am issuing a standing order for SEAL Team 6 to assassinate Donald Trump, of course, he would lose his mind over that. And everybody would understand that the president of the United States could not do such a thing, that they cannot break the law in that way. Um, but it is it is just kind of 
it's the thing that makes it so obvious uh, that it is the argument that they are making is ridiculous and well beyond the bounds of what the framers of our system of government intended for this role. Yeah, and I think it matches a kind of brokenness in the discord or the uh, how that the Trump campaign is positioning itself. They kind of want it both ways in certain way. They want him to be the president for certain prosecutions, but not the president for other prosecutions. So yeah, there's a, just a huge problem here if we think historically about checks and balances and how they're the core of our system. We need kind of a basic understanding that if you give any one person power that's absolute, it's not going to be good, even if you think that person is totally well-meaning. So yeah, it's worrisome and you wonder how much he even means it. But uh, yeah, certainly there's there's nothing here that's a solid principle to work with. Yeah, it it is the kind of stuff, of course, that we have come to expect from Donald Trump. Um, there's one other thing too, and the the part that I didn't read, so I'll give it to you here now. You can't stop police, again, all caps. You can't stop police from doing the job of strong and effective crime prevention because you want to guard against the occasional, quote, rogue cop or, quote, bad apple. Sometimes you just have to live with great but slightly imperfect. This is something that for me has always bothered me in the way that we have talked about policing too, where we talk about like, you know, oh, that's just one bad apple. Can somebody please recall for me that entire expression? One bad apple ruins the bunch. bunch. Uh, So the crime against the English language uh, and our our way of communicating with each other, I find very, very annoying in that people use that as a defense, that it's just one bad apple without even thinking of like, what is the idiom that we're getting this from? And what is the point that that is trying to raise? Well, and I think that's exactly right. That has ruined the bunch in the sense that the way a lot of people think about policing now is that every policeman is a bad apple, right? And so it has that kind of rhetoric at the very least has ruined the way other people think about law enforcement as having codes of conduct, which is a core way that we all need to be able to trust the system yeah. that we're working and, with. Yeah, and I think it, in that sense, it does connect to the issue that we often discuss when it comes to policing, which is qualified immunity. Now, Trump and his legal team are not making an argument here for qualified immunity. They are making an argument for complete and total immunity, They're like that essentially taking the Frost-Nixon quote, the Nixon to, to, to Frost, that if the president does it, it's not illegal, uh, to, and, and turning it up to 11. That, that is essentially what they are, they are doing here. Um, but we have you, – you are correct, Dan, of course, to point out that you know Ford pardoned Nixon. Um, I, I think it is also worth pointing out that uh, I I've, I've personally will go back and forth on this, that we want to think of the president in a certain way in this country that – you know, we we're electing this person and nobody wants to think that they're following somebody who is a bad person. So you come up with all kinds of rationalizations. And there have been for years people who have asked questions about, you know, whether or not the president of the United States, once they leave office, should be prosecuted for certain things that they did while they were the president of the United States. You know, I'm they were all old enough to remember um, at the end of George W. Bush's uh, second term, there were conversations about whether or not Bush and other people from his administration should be prosecuted for war crimes having to do with the war on terror, Iraq and Afghanistan. There was an open question about whether or not Bill Clinton would or could or should be prosecuted 
after his second term ended for uh, for his perjury during the Lewinsky affair. He could have been pursued by legal authorities after he left office. In almost all of these cases, we have chosen not to do that. I think that says something very positive about the way that Americans view the stability of their political system in that we don't think it is necessary, even in cases that are pretty, you know, big charges like war crimes. We don't think it is necessary to go after the people once they have left that office. I worry that that is changing. I worry that that is changing and not always for good reasons. I think we can we've discussed the legal cases against Donald Trump on this program before. Um, Some of them have a lot more merits than the others. This goes back to another characteristic of Trump himself, too, that I think we have to keep in mind. This would this would be the kind of thing where he would say things that are really provocative and people would get very angry or upset about them. And the group of people who like it because he does it to own the libs was like, well, yeah, it's like why do people get so angry about it? It was like, well, because he's doing it to be provocative, because he's doing it to get that kind of reaction out of it. Um I think this is, in a sense, no different. I think Trump is poking at these things. He does these things with a sense of what are you going to do? Come after me? Then try to come after me. Uh, And and just kind of to a certain extent does not care uh, about the reactions of people to the things that he does. It is more complicated. He is definitely – you can make a compelling argument he's running for president to try to stay out of prison. Um, And it raises a whole bunch of other questions, too, that at some point we may have to answer, like, can a president pardon himself if Trump wins? He's probably going to do that. We have no idea how that is going to shake out. But it it has said something very positive about the way we think of our system of government up till now, that we have not found it necessary. Again, with the exception of – like, you're right, Dan. We were proceeding down a path where Nixon would have been prosecuted after resigning from office. And in that case, Ford pardoning him was the way of saying, as as Ford explicitly said, that we need to move on, that we just need to move on beyond all of this. Uh, We don't have that kind of magnanimous leadership anymore. So that's not going to be on the table. But it is something that we are going to have to come to grips with sooner rather than later. And I think part of this American tradition that, as you said, presidents have not been prosecuted after harkens back to Washington. You know, people called him the American Cincinnatus. So Cincinnatus is a Roman general who's, you know, in the field. He's a farmer. He comes, fights with his army, wins the war, and then goes right back to the fields. And that was kind of this American ideal of statesmanship. And so I think people's unwillingness to prosecute is kind of goes along with this idea of the president can kind of leave public life after their term is done and we'll let them retire quietly. That's kind of the deal with Nixon is, you know, okay, he he stepped down, he resigned, and then Ford comes in and pardons him. That goes along with that idea. If you see the way that Trump's followers talk about him now, it's much more of a Caesar complex than a Cincinnatus complex that we're seeing now. The kernel of truth here in this statement, truth, the kernel of truth in President Trump's truth, (laughs) in all caps, is that systems of justice 
can be perverted towards political ends. That is true. That is something that we see all the time around the world. Those are very serious problems. There are, I think, in a lot of cases, as Eric mentioned, there's a lot of cases against President Trump, some of more merit than others. Clearly, some of them are politically motivated. So this is a problem, you know, you know, is is President Trump eroding norms by some of this rhetoric? Yes. But there's also a sense in which many of these overzealous prosecutors are are also eroding norms in how we typically deal with presidents. And some of these prosecutions are clearly politically motivated. Now, that being said, you know, and we've talked on acting online before about the merits of certain cases. I think that most reasonable people could see that there is some merit to at least some of these cases. And I think all reasonable people should reject the notion that the president has complete immunity to do whatever, whenever, um, in the result of either office or any future campaigns or anything like this, um, you know, and when you use this sort of inflammatory rhetoric, what you are inviting is a very polarized response where people out of hand dismiss this as ridiculous. And then the president's defenders will say, hey, what about the sort of political prosecutions you see in, you know, in Nicaragua, for instance? I mean, there are there there are cases in the world where prosecutors abuse their authority for political purposes. But I'd encourage everybody to take a step back and actually take the time to look at these cases on their merits and not reflexively dismiss on the one hand or defend on the other and and try to gain a more balanced perspective on these things. You make a very good point, too, that it is it – is the violation of norms all the way down, it creates this cycle where I think it's undeniably true that Trump has been transgressive of the norms of our system of government and our political culture. The problem is, is that when he does that, he creates a permission structure for his opponents to violate other norms in the name of pushing back on the violations of norms that he is creating. And the whole thing just continues to spin and to spin and to spin until we have just disregarded uh, as many of these norms of the way that we handle ourselves in public life as we possibly can, which is why my you know, my argument, which is an unpopular one, I will confess that at some point, you know, you get this from the right a lot that was like, well, you know, we have to fight fire with fire. And it's like at, at some point, somebody needs to be the one to act in a way that they would like to see others act. And you may get blowback for that. You may be on the receiving end of slings and arrows for that. But at some point, you do have to act like the the version of, of public life that you wish we had rather than in response to the one that we actually have. That is my continued concern in the way that – 
every time some new norm is violated, it creates a permission structure for other people to violate that and other norms of the way that we're supposed to operate. And I don't know where it ends other than not someplace really good. And I suppose we will find out in the coming days and weeks what the courts think of this argument. Speaking of the courts, let's go to one that exists, at least in theory, in The Hague. The International Criminal Court that exists in The Hague. Uh, Read here from Reuters. Uh, Israel last week rejected as false and, quote, grossly distorted. Accusations brought by South Africa at the U.N.'s top court that its military operation in Gaza is a state-led genocide campaign against Palestinians. Arguing it was acting to defend itself and was fighting Hamas, not the Palestinian population, Israel called on the International Court of Justice to dismiss the case as groundless and reject South Africa's request request, uh, to order it to halt the offensive. Quote, this is no genocide, lawyer Malcolm Shaw said. South Africa told the court um, Thursday, I think a week, two weeks ago, that Israel's aerial and ground offensive, which has laid waste to much of the enclave and killed almost 24,000 people, according to Gaza Health authorities. I'll add my little editorial comment there that the Gaza Health Ministry, which provides those numbers, is a subsidiary of Hamas, so you cannot rely on those numbers, but that is what is reported, uh, aimed to bring about the destruction of the population of Gaza. What is interesting to me about this is, um, and I I would commend to people the Advisory Opinions podcast that uh, Sarah Isger and David French from The Dispatch do. Um, They have talked about international law before, and I am, I will admit to being uh, largely persuaded by Sarah Isger's argument that international law does not exist. It It is a legal fiction. It is something that we say exists, but there is no real way of enforcing it. There is, you know, the the International Court of Justice doesn't really have much in the way of authority. It's kind of like if they can actually get their hands on somebody, maybe they can do something about it. But there's really no meaningful enforcement mechanism there. It's backed by the U.N., I think. We all have a sense of how ineffective the United Nations actually is. What's interesting to me is in the middle of a war, Israel showed up to defend itself against these charges, which to me is more revealing about what Israel sees as necessary for its public relations campaign amidst this battle than anything else. This would have easily been the kind of thing that there was like, yeah, we don't need, we're not going to concern ourselves with this right now. We've got to concern ourselves with what is in front of us in the, the battle in Gaza. In thinking that they should come to the International Court of Justice and rebut these charges, I think that is interesting, but probably the only really interesting thing about this other than, and Dan, I imagine maybe you will get into a little bit of this, interesting choice in South Africa being the one to come forward to talk about a lot of these problems that they claim things Israel, they claim Israel is doing. Um, South Africa got its own history with... uh, the kind of things that they could have been brought in front of the International Court of Justice for. But I found that part interesting, but more interesting, the fact that Israel thought it necessary to come forward and defend itself in this court. So in terms of South Africa, I think this makes sense. When you have, let's take a trip back in time to back when the Republic of South Africa 
not not the current South African government, but the South African Republic is proclaimed, I think, in 1965. And we start getting the sort of comprehensive grand apartheid legislation. South Africa found itself increasingly isolated from the international community. Two of its sort of stalwart friends who would cooperate with South Africa, with the apartheid government, in sort of defense initiatives were other nations that had similar pariah status for very different reasons than South Africa did. One of those is the state of Israel, and the other is Taiwan, the Republic of China. These are all very different, uh, different reasons that they found themselves sort of outside of much of the international system. The story of Israel is well known and the failure of many states to recognize its right to exist. The status of Taiwan as for all intents and purposes, an independent nation that is not recognized as such by very many countries since that recognition was transferred to the government, the communist government in mainland China is different. South African's sort of history of apartheid is why that international isolation happened there. Those are all very three different cases. But the reality of it is, is they did materially cooperate and aid each other during that period when they were all struggling for international recognition. Now, that is very much cooperation based on expedience for all three of those regimes. But I think what, you know, when I saw that South Africa was bringing this, the current government in South Africa is, of course, led by the African National Congress, which was illegal through much of this period under the previous apartheid regime. And I think this is a misguided attempt to sort of atone for the legacy of the previous South African government and its cooperation and aid to Israel. That's very far afield from the merits of all of these arguments made, but might give some people some background as to why the South African, African National Congress-led government would be so sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and would be particularly critical of Israel. I share the kind of skepticism about some of the international law um, and, and how that works. But I actually do think that Israel is getting an amount of international oversight that is in the best sense of that term. So the U.S. kind of has a, a stake in this and is kind of ensuring you see these different talks along the way where they're saying, you know, is there a better way to do this? And there's talks back and forth with the Israel government as well with different Euro European governments that are kind of having this sharp oversight over Israel to say this is this is what we need to make sure you're doing t that you're targeting Hamas in the best way limiting civilian casualties that kind of thing um, but I do think that this kind of case doesn't ha carry a lot of weight a how can you have international law without international enforcement of law but what the UN does do that's you know if we're talking about international organization that is helpful um, 
it's allowing certain states to kind of sit together on the sidelines. Sometimes there's even different countries that will have talks at the UN, even if they don't have normalized relations. They just kind of see each other at these types of meetings. So that's kind of the best thing that can come out of these international relationships. But there's not a lot of weight in this type of international kind of lawsuit. One thing I'd like to push back against both of you on is that international law exists even if you don't believe in it, even if you don't enforce it, because it's natural law. Now, we can go back to the old books, the Grotius, you know, these sorts of natural law theorists in the 16th and 17th centuries that the roots of this tradition come into. Now, you're right, the enforcement is messy. But like when the Nuremberg trial convened, it was not a show trial. There were actual crimes against humanity perpetrated by the Nazi regime. And those people were justly tried and punished, despite the fact that there was no explicit constitutional legal mechanisms on, you know, that were in place from 1933 to 1945 that you could bring up civil code violations. When we're talking about particularly international law, it becomes natural law arguments become particularly important. There's a lot of times, you know, I did a, a, a nice interview with uh, Hadley Arcus and his, his new book on natural law. Natural law exists and it can be appealed to as grounds for justice irrespective of current constitutional arrangements, be those national or be those global or, in fact, be those intergalactic should Star Trek ever happen. Um, these are, you know, this is an eternal law that is grounded in human nature itself. And the merits of individual cases, you know, and the mechanisms by which those are adjudicated is, is another question. But I think it's very dangerous for us to just devalue and dismiss the notion of international law when you look at things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the United Nations came up with, you know, Jacques Maritain, Charles Mallet, profound Christian thinkers informed by the natural law tradition sought to, and people continue to seek, again, albeit imperfectly, to instantiate that in some sort of legal mechanism, and that's difficult and that's messy, but that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile project, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's not a legitimate project. I think that is, uh, those are very good points, and they are well taken. I think my objection is less to the points you make there on the, you know, it exists whether you believe in it or not, and I think I would agree with you on that. My problem is the form that the institutions that have uh, come into existence for the purpose of furthering this understanding. Um, I think are at worst failed and at best corrupted. 
there is this flattening thing that goes on with the United Nations where, you know, it it's the kind of thing that's pointed out on a regular basis. So you almost become inured to it. But like, you know, the Human Rights Commission of the United Nations being headed by Iran, like these kinds of things that are just absurdities, the, the nations that are put in charge of some of these committees and commissions of this, you know, the United Nations being the foremost thing that embodies the sense of, you know, international law and international diplomacy, um, that there is no, basically the only criteria for membership in it is that you can claim to be a nation state. And no matter how good or bad, no matter how, you know, transgressive to the norms of modern life you are, no matter how murderous you are as a regime, no matter how much you deprive people of human rights as a regime, you are still a member in equal standing to almost every other nation in the world. Even in its distilled form in the United Nations Security Council, yes, you have the United States on there, but you also have Russia and you have China on there too. Um, the not a whole lot can go through the United, the the Security Council uh, because in most cases, one of those two, you know, parties on on either side, the United States or, or Russia and China on the other, are going to veto anything meaningful moving through there. So I think the the failure to find a mechanism, an institutional mechanism to advance this idea, uh, I think, is one of the things doing a disservice to the concept itself. There's one other point that I want to make too, which is, and I think people should be on the watch for this, which is the way that we talk about genocide and the way that we are cheapening the term genocide and the way that people don't understand where it came from. Where did the term genocide come from? It comes from the 1948 Genocide Convention, which is 1948, so you might imagine, after the Second World War, after the discovery of the Holocaust, and really to set aside and separate, as, as um, the, to read directly from it here, acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And we throw this around kind of willy-nilly right now. Um, I think there is a compelling argument on the if Israel is genocidal and they actually do have a nuclear weapon um, – they're a very bad genocidal state. Like they can't seem to pull off the goal. Whereas it is written into the charter of Hamas that they are a genocidal organization. And I think there is something extremely pernicious in the way that it is the charge of genocide that is being brought against the only Jewish state when it is from what happened to the worldwide Jewish population in the Second World War, that is the reason for the creation of the term itself. Um, I think that the charges that South Africa are bringing are, are really bad and, and not a very meritorious case. Um, but I think the way that we have been throwing around this term genocide is one that we need to be a little bit – pay a little bit more attention to. Words mean things and when we use them in all kinds of different ways to mean other things, they cease to have the same meaning. And there's a an, an interesting John McWhorter linguistic kind of argument to be made that as long as we understand what the other person is, is saying, literal can mean figurative. If you just know that when someone says, you know, I literally died, they don't mean it literally. They just mean it as a point of emphasis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I take all of that to, um, in stride. But I think there's a very important point about using terminology correctly, particularly in issues like this, that we should be paying a little bit more attention to than we are right now. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. 
If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Noah. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.